and namaste. Immerse in your own power with Abha. The woman who has shattered ceilings, made new rules, and shows you exactly how. Straight from the heart, says it just as it is. This show is dedicated to your power. Welcome to Breakout with Abha. I'm bound to create The love I appreciate No license do I praise Or reframe my brave Freedom Is all I see Expanse Is all I breathe Move away blocks Cause you have to shut up I'm born to create Hi, Namaste, and welcome to Break Out with Me, Abha. Thank you so much for watching. As you know, we bring to you some exceptional people, people who have been the thought transformers, people who are making new rules, breaking the rules, been there and done that. And they're going to demystify this whole rules game for us so that we can break out of what we find limiting and break into something that we find absolutely important and necessary for us. Uh, from them, we learn there is only one rule to life, and that is, that there are no rules to life. We just make them up all on the way. And my guest today, as you see on my side, is yet another exceptional gentleman, lecturer in political economy at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. From 2000, from the year 2000 to uh, 2014, he was the Stanford University Dean for Religious Life, as well as lecturer at the GSB starting in 2003. He was the university chaplain at the Tufts University from 1984 to the year 2000, as well as senior lecturer at the Harvard Business School for 10 of those years. You're in for a treat right now. Okay, so his primary interest and work revolves around the interface of religion, ethics, and professions. So we're going to demystify religion, spirituality, faith, work, business, real life, and a lot of stuff today. Please welcome Scotty McLennan. Scotty, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much, for, Abba, for having me on. I am so grateful you could make time for this because I have so much to talk to you. And uh, I've read your work. I've read all your work. I mean, not all your work, but all the stuff that you've been doing. And I was overwhelmed when, I, when, I, when you said, yes, I, I would agree to be on, the, on Breakout and uh, speak about it. So uh, my first question to you, I mean, I have tons of them, but the first one that I would like to begin with will be a generic question uh, that you have. Um, we live in times of either fashionable religion or popular religion or misplaced religion. We don't fully see it in, in the form that probably you're talking about or some other people have spoken about earlier. So where is it today, according to you? In terms of fashionable, misplaced, or otherwise, it's a very active time, I think, worldwide for yeah. religion. And it's uh, in, the, in the academic world, there was a time not too long ago, probably decades actually, when religion really wasn't an arena that academics talked much about when they were talking about political science or um, economics, these, these areas that were apparently free of religion. But now we realize, of course, that religion infuses everything. And it's, a, I think, quite an active time in America and around the world for religion. I think it is. And I, I also believe, uh, because from my, my own understanding many years ago, as I was looking around the world and seeing what, what makes people in every society, every nation is influenced by religion. And if we do not look into it and how it has built people or not built people, either way, uh, we, we need to start looking at religion as a, as a very, very primary resource that we have with us uh, to build people around us. So what would you say? Because so far, as I know, um, and whatever my little understanding is about religion, in, and I've, I've studied some, not as much as you have, but I've studied um, things around this side of the world and also have had the opportunity to go through the, to, to the Bible. I have been to churches. I've understood some bit of not what, how the church works, but how Jesus works. So I, I believe that, you know, there is a lot of distortion, uh, manipulation, uh, a lot of tacky stuff going on out there uh, by distorting what 
actually religion or God could mean for people. What do you have to say about that? One of my professors way back when I was in divinity school at Harvard used to say that religion's not a particularly useful word right. because in fact there's two dimensions, tradition and faith. Right. And tradition is the side of the institutions, clergy, um, rituals, uh, everything that you see externally and faith is internal spirituality, your own connection with God or with the universe, uh, with nature and so on. And they work with each other uh, often uh, well, but they also can be in great contrast when you see religion being taken over by political figures or used for reasons that certainly its founders would not have been happy about. Right. And, and that brings me to the next, what you just mentioned about the spiritual side of it and the spirituality, that religion is the beginning in some form um, of understanding what spirit uh, and spirituality is that itself leads to faith. I mean, this is like a, I, I, I have in my little understanding, this is the graph that I see that we start off in a place which is uh, a bit not dogmatic, but it gives you instructions. But slowly you figure in your own self where it, where it stands inside yourself. And once you understand that, it builds faith for you to do things for tomorrow. So tomorrow depends a lot on faith. So how are you looking at it um, in terms of developing people's faith in a good tomorrow? If we're all fighting over here, it's not it's not not looking great out there in the name of religion. So how would you how would you frame that for us? Well, actually, I spent some time early in my life in India one summer living with a Hindu Brahmin priest. Right. And he used to talk about many roads up the spiritual mountain, right. which get to the top. And a lot of them are these broad paths like Islam and Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism. Right. And there, of course, are some cul-de-sacs and some ways of going over cliffs when you think you're climbing uh, up a mountain. Right. But in general, getting lost, you know, going in thickets and walking around in circles. But generally, these wide paths will lead to the top of the mountain. Now, right. a lot of us never get there, uh, and we don't uh, know that they're crossroads uh, right. and, uh, on the way up the mountain. But ideally, I think we would do a lot better in the world if, to use another Hindu metaphor, we recognize that we're blind men at the elephant. Yeah. And we're standing around feeling different parts of the elephant, all of us thinking we can see all of the elephant. But in fact, we just see the tusks or we see the, the hide or the mouth or something else, right. which we claim is the whole picture. So I'm very uh, moved, actually, by, by Hindu uh, sort of ways of looking at pluralism and saying that's got to be our salvation. And right. people like uh, Mahatma Gandhi uh, spoke to that quite articulately in his time. Right, right. Um, uh, that's that's the actually true because the way we live over here, because we start off uh, believing and we start off learning that this is the kind of pluralism that exists over here, that there are many ways to it, but there is one, one place that we have to go. Unfortunately, it's not practiced. Uh, as much as it's spoken about over here. And uh, that's the sad part about the spirituality or the religion that we face or learn of as a, as Hindus. I'm a born Hindu, but um, I have been, I, I, I did not like the way I was taught Hinduism because I did not strike my, my mind or my heart as something that was, that was, uh, that would work to build me up. So uh, that brings me to another question that, uh, what's the, you know, um, there are, there are, why are we being taught religion? I, I mean, are we, are we, um, do we not have enough teachers out there who can tell us that this is useful and it's not just to be used? Well, there's a lot of teachers out there who are, first of all, saying that religion is a delusion and that religion is uh, useless, uh, that religion is dangerous, right. that religion uh, leads to holy wars and pogroms and holocausts and so on. And I think all those people do need to be listened to. Uh, we've had a whole series of atheist authors in the United States that have been quite successful on the New York Times bestseller list and so on. And I do think that whole message needs to be heard quite clearly. Yeah. On the other hand, we have in religion a lot of good that's been done from the American civil rights movement being led by an African-American Martin Luther King Jr. and other uh, black ministers of the time, um, visionaries like Mahatma Gandhi in India and the Dalai Lama um, in, in Tibet. And, you know, I could go on and on with um, 
with very positive examples of religion, but it does uh, give an opportunity to people to utilize it in a very tribal way, if you will, to use their ethnicity and their national origin and use it in an exclusive way, which then pretty quickly people get afraid of what might happen to their tradition and they circle the wagons around and before you know it they're trying to not only defend themselves but take preemptive strikes at other traditions and before we know it we are in that realm of pogroms and the holocaust and and holy wars right right so that's what what i meant when you say instead of using it if we start understanding the usefulness of it probably uh, we would not be looking at religion the way we look today because the, whatever you have spoken about, it is happening. And we got to start seeing uh, that this is happening because of the a version of religion. I do not, I cannot say it's right or wrong, but a version of religion which is not working very well. Uh, well, I think it's always wrong. When you say right or wrong, I think we have to be, be clear about the, the morality of this. No, you know, it, if people yeah. are killing each other... In the name of, the, of, the, of their religion, right. if they are uh, denigrating each other, they're being discriminatory against right. each other, right. they're trying to run uh, a political system on one religion and repress all the others, etc. Right. Uh, we need to be clear that that's immoral. Okay, great. I, I agree with you because uh, when, I meant, when I said right or wrong, I meant the versions. When people go out screaming that my version is right, uh, we have to start looking into them and see how much of it is right and how much of it is not. But yes, if they're killing people, it's wrong. Yes, if they are, they're bringing other people down and telling them they don't have a right to do what they have, it's wrong. So I think that brings me to your book. Uh, you, you've written a book called Jesus Was a Liberal. And um, I also believe, and I, I would ask you that question, does religion need to be liberal as well? There, is, there has to be an element of liberalism in interpreting or understanding what religion is so that it opens up the way rather than closing it down on us. So through your book. Right. (laughs) Well, I wrote this book because Christianity in America since the late 1970s has really been captured by conservative Christianity, fundamentalist, um, some forms of evangelical. I'm I'm not trying to say that all of evangelical Christianity is that conservative uh, in, in the same way. But it's been captured in a way that the liberal voice, which has was, talk about Martin Luther King Jr., uh, he was a, a Christian liberal. Uh, the people that were in, engaged in fighting the Vietnam War, excuse me, in resisting the Vietnam War in America were Roman Catholic liberals and um, uh, Protestant liberals and so on. So we've kind of lost that what used to be the public voice of American religion in the 1960s, for example, and 1970s, and it's all shifted 180 degrees. So part of what I was doing with this book was to try to reclaim for what I think are 40 to 100 million Americans who are liberal Christians and believe in tolerance and openness and interpreting the Bible uh, in a non-literal way, and trying to open it up so that those people feel, yes, of course, they're also Christian. Right. So a lot of these groups and politicians and, you know, all the people who are using, I mean, who are are referring to religion and the gods and the scriptures as just progressive. So you've been politically incorrect by calling it liberal. So you've gone out of the way to... To, to stop that and say, okay, liberal, there is a different word for it. So how, how much resistance have you faced so far in, in helping out those 20% liberal Christians out there? Well, I hope I've been of some help. You, you need to look at book sales or you can look at how the, the ideas have been used and so on. Who knows how, how much of an effect I've had. But there are a lot of people like me. Uh, around who are trying to speak from a liberal perspective and there's organizations that are trying to further progressive Christianity. Right. So I think we've, you know, had some impact and hopefully. Okay, great. So uh, you've also, in your book, you have uh, touched upon a lot of uh, topics, a lot of, uh, you know, issues that exist today, uh, which are very controversial. You know, people are still the political world is fighting over it. Uh, you've talked about uh, abortion, same-sex marriage, 
uh, you you you've been um, you know you uh, how those those things are still not resolved in the real world and how people are either struggling to resolve it or how groups are using the same thing for their own benefit um how has how has the response to been those specifics that you have spoken about well it depends on who i'm speaking with <laughs> so if i'm on a very conservative christian talk radio right. station uh, i hear a lot of of negativity about those views. Uh, I was at a bookstore in Texas where when I went into the bookstore, all of my books were turned over on their face right. uh, on the display and and where the person who introduced me to talk about the book said, of course, we know that this title, Jesus was a liberal, is toxic, but actually uh, this person has something to say, so yeah. you may want to listen up and so on. So. There are certainly those kinds of reactions. There was another place where somebody uh, actually rushed me from the back of the of the auditorium, uh, you know, trying to do violence. So there's been some hard times with this book, but there's also been a lot of very positive reception and people who are very happy to have that voice out in the the public arena. How, how nice is that? So this is I, I was expecting something like this. I said you must have faced something like this. So uh, I'm very good friends with Jesus. I feel that. You know, so I and he's very good friends with me. So if he were present today, according to you, uh, if he were present today as he was 2000 years ago and the amount of violence that we see today, the amount of uh, nonsense that is going on in his name, uh, we, we know him. I mean, if people like the Christian liberals or people who have studied Jesus, if at all, not not, not necessarily the church. But if I have studied uh, Jesus, I found him to be the biggest rebel or a revolutionary or an outlier that has ever cross this earth. So what would he be saying today, according to you? According to me, I will just say what he said according to him in the Bible, which is, blessed are the peacemakers, right. for they shall inherit the earth. Right. And if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And, and so on. Uh, love your enemies, not just your friends, not just your neighbors, but love your enemies. Right. Uh, he was somebody who went out of his way to reach out to the hated and the despised of his day, whether they were Roman tax collectors or prostitutes or lepers, people who were um, being discriminated against in his society, women as well, who he had uh, in his circle uh, at a time which was very patriarchal. So in any case, I think Jesus would be saying what he was saying then now. And when you put that in the public arena uh, now, it can sound quite radical. When, and if you think about the first 300 years of the Christian church, it was a pacifist church. Right. It wasn't until um, Constantine when, in the Holy Roman Empire uh, more than 300 years after Jesus, that a new theory of just war was developed. But before that, it was a pacifist church. Right. And it, you know, didn't, didn't, violence was, was, uh, was not allowed. Uh, that's, that's great. So, um, yes, I mean, we, we got to go by it. The word, we got to understand what the word means and how expansively we can live the word to make this world a better place. Um, so, yeah, great, great on that answer, Scotty. I want to come to the courses that you're now teaching in Stanford and uh, the whole idea of um, understanding business leadership through literature and the whole moral and spiritual inquiry thing. So would you just give me uh, and give me and my audience and listeners a peep into what those courses are like? Because uh, there are not many happening around the world, if I can say so, because it's not happening here. We don't, we don't talk about religion like this. I mean, I would be beaten up if I did. So I, would, I will have to figure another way to do it. Uh, but I'm, I'm so glad that I'm talking to you because if this is going on, this is a good sign for people like myself who want to understand religion in a different way. So give us, give us a peep into the course. Why did it start and what, what, what made you do it? Is it is, was it in the university or you, you, you were the person who started it all? Actually, I did not start it. I first got involved in the late 1980s at Harvard Business School when they were beginning a new ethics program and asked me to come and help in the development of that program. Right. And there was a professor named Robert Coles right. who was teaching a, a number of courses around the university, a very large undergraduate course, but also one at the medical school, the law school, the uh, business school, the education school, looking at ethics through literature. 
So right. novels, plays, short stories with protagonists uh, appropriate to those professions and asking how character is built, um, how you find and, and make moral leaders. Right. And I had the opportunity because I was coming in just as a new ethics program was beginning at the business school and he was on sabbatical. They asked me if I would teach this course. Right. So I came into it without uh, a lot of knowledge. It's, luckily, he'd written a book called The Call of Stories that right. I could read, and he was around enough for me to talk to. Uh, but I sort of pushed it in a new direction. So he called it moral and social uh, inquiry through fiction. Right. I changed the title to moral and spiritual inquiry through literature. Right. Uh, because I think of literature being misunderstood if it's seen just as fiction. Right. I mean, I think li good literature, great, great artists uh, give us reality more clearly than almost anyone else, better than biographers, better than case studies, and so on. So in any case, I was lucky to be able to come in and begin teaching this course. And I've been teaching it literally ever since for about uh, 12 years at the Harvard Business School right. and then for about a similar period of time at the Stanford Business School. Right. So uh, you've been using plays, novels, literature uh, to examine the moral and spiritual aspects of business leadership, uh, to understand environments in which those people acted, the characters acted the way they did, and to be able to go deeper into their persons or the environment and to derive something out of it. So uh, how important is it in um, in the national context, for if I would say you, you, in the course I see there is a mention of... Uh, uh, religious, the interplay of religious traditions with national identities. It builds people in a certain way. A certain circumstance, individually or collectively, can cause people to do things or think in certain ways, which are very, very specific to that environment. Correct. Uh, so in your classes, um, um, I, I'm excited to even read this because uh, uh, in your classes, how, how does this work? I mean, uh, how big are the classes? And this kind of inquiry is like, uh, it keeps it keeps your mind thinking of all the lateral ways in which you can think, all the things that you can do. So it sort of builds up the head. Um, uh, uh, tell us more about it. And the heart. And the heart. Yes. It, I, I, when I say head, I mean it's it's it brings in a new kind of thought to you, which you can then uh, embrace and work on. So uh, please let us know, all of us. Uh, I'm in, I'm your student. I'm sitting in your class, and I want to understand this a little bit better. So when you create a context or an ideology through a play or a piece of literature, um, how does it? How how do your students uh, look at it? How is it taught? Because we we can we can have this kind of discussion. However, if we were to start thinking of it, because it needs a lot of personal reflection also through the course, right? To be able to understand these things. Right. So what I do in the course is to start with the American dream with books that. Are that conjure up and deal with this whole notion of the American dream, which can be just seen as a rags to riches story, right. but also can be seen as one that relates to the idea of, of basic values of America, of equality and of liberty and justice and so on, uh, that people come to this country for. And books like uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby really get at that the kind of hope that the main character has in that book as his is a rags to riches story. And after I do America with several uh, novels and plays, short stories, then we start moving around the world looking at how business may operate in Alexandria, Egypt, or in Japan, or in India, um, in Africa, in Russia, and so on. Right. And what, the way I use the literature is I teach it Socratically. That is, I try to draw out from the students their reactions, responses, understanding, rather than lecturing to them. Right. And I have study questions that I give them right. as they're reading the book, yeah. which gives them an opportunity to think and do that kind of reflection. And then in the classroom, my job really is to ask the questions and keep turning it so that we... I often will play the devil's advocate to try to say, well, now we've seen this side, but what about that side? And right. yes, you talk about these these uh, virtues of character right. for, let's say, Gadsby, right. but there's also some vices. And how do we uh, how do we see the person in their fullness? How do we see them not only in their business life but in their personal life? Right. In life as a citizen, um, 
in their uh, life with their uh, partners and spouses and lovers and right. all these different contexts which are about the fullness of life. Right. So I, I actually asked you because this can be very touchy. You know, people can, uh, because it hits you at different places. It's not just uh, uh, something that you learn about the book or the moral and spiritual part of the literature, but it hits you in person, you know. So um, how has, uh, it, has there been an occasion where uh, people have be, have gone off board completely and say, oh, oh this is not, because religion is touchy, uh, your personal uh, traits are touchy, you know, there may be vices that you're carrying within yourself, and there may be people who sort of just uh, puff up because, oh, yeah, I, I got this, uh, you know, because Jesus was doing this, so I can do this too kind of stuff. So has that happened in your in your classrooms ever? Uh, of course. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> that's part of the fun of teaching this class is that everything's out on the table. Uh, issues of race, of gender, of, of yeah. sex identity, of, you know, uh, on and on and on, national origin. It's all there. And what I'm trying to do is, is play what I call to the students a two-text method. So we look at the text of the play or short story or novel, right. but we also look at the text of people's own lives. Right. And so all of us have our stories. We are stories. We're characters in our own stories. Right. And so I ask people to the extent they can and are willing to, I try to be gentle about it, right. bring that forward. And then I try to create an atmosphere of respect in the classroom where I'm saying to people, try to use I statements, not you have got to be kidding. You know, how can you say such a thing? Right. No. Tell us how you feel. Tell us your experience. Listen respectfully. And if we get in those kinds of problems that you describe, I then ask people to try before they speak to summarize what they heard from the previous speaker right. in such a way that the previous speaker will accept it and say, oh, yeah, you understand what I said. You get right. it. And right. once they've done that, then they can speak. But if they didn't get it, then the previous speaker gets to say it again right. until, until the next person understands. So you can use methods like that to try to help people really listen empathetically, hear each other, be respectful, right. but at the same time to be very clear about right. where they're coming from, what their own feelings are, what their own experiences have been. And that's very helpful because people are able to hear how radically differently we look at the world, depending on our background, on our religion, on our ethnicity, on our national origin. We do really look at the world very differently. And in the classroom, it's important to have students learn that and see that and therefore be better citizens of the world. Right, right. I, I think you've been, a, I'm sure what you're talking about, you're a fantastic, gentle devil's advocate doing this and, you know, allowing people to accept the whole idea of uh, perspective and, and the, the liberal aspect of anything, not just religion, maybe everything else. So you, you are also touching upon Buddhism in India. I mean, uh, the American dream, first of all, okay, let's get to the American dream through the eyes of a Hindu immigrant uh, from India. Uh, so how, how does, uh, because there are the, we have huge cultural differences. We have huge cultural ways of looking at things. Uh, when people go there, they go with that mindset into the U.S., or into the American dream, believing that it's, uh, that, like you just said, that you, you're doing this so you, they can see the real side of things as well. What has been, uh, what's your take on that one? Uh, because I'm interested in understanding the Hindu immigrant from India. What did he get to do there? Right. So the book I use for that is Bharati Mukherjee, an Indian-American author, right. who um, has written a book called Jasmine, and it takes a woman from India through experiences with religious violence, actually, in India, she comes to the United States, uh, is violated, actually raped uh, when she first arrives in the United States. Um, it does have some people help her out along the way, including a Quaker Christian woman that basically gets her up to New York and in contact with her daughter. Right. And she's able to have experiences in New York, which are generally very positive, but she has some negative experiences, again, thinking that the person um, who had uh, killed her husband back in India was now in New York. Right. So she ends up going to Iowa, right. and, uh, living a, a life in the heartland of America uh, with a banker there, right. who it turns out ultimately gets shot and paralyzed. Right. So it gets very complicated. But by the end of the book, she actually leaves that banker uh, with the person that she had been uh, doing childcare for in New York, who is now divorced from his wife, mm -hmm. and they end up heading out to California. 
So the big question, uh, morally, I think, for a lot of the students at the end of the book is, is it right for a woman who is pregnant with the um, child of the, uh, the banker to be playing off what she calls old world dutifulness against American freedom mm-hmm. and heading off to California with, her, uh, with this man from New York. Now, all the way along in this novel, we're seeing how she looks at the world through, through, a car, you know, through karma and right. that way of understanding morality, right. uh, an assumption of reincarnation, right. an assumption that some of that can be instant karma, not just uh, in a next life. And that's being played off against certain American ideals and so on, but also against American ignorance in many cases where, you know, she seems very exotic to a lot of Americans and they like her Indian cooking, but they're not so sure about her ideas. And um, there's racism in terms of of, uh, color and, you know, all kinds of things uh, get played out in that novel. And it's just a wonderful opportunity for us to talk about the immigrant experience, to talk about India and the United States, to talk about Hinduism and Christianity. Right. And, um, you know, there's, there's lots to do with that book. Right, right. So um, um, you mentioned karma. Uh, we, we, live with, we live by this word as if, you know, we eat it every morning uh, as a pill. Uh, however, um, misunderstood, if I could call it, because uh, the way you have, you, the way I see the course structure and the kind of special, the questions that you put at the end of it, uh, you talk about karma, instant karma, and um, this that you don't have to wait a lifetime to develop your core, but there is a possibility or an opportunity to every individual, for every individual, to switch karma now, you know, based on our own understanding of what we are looking forward to in terms of our own ne- negative either actions or the consequences of other actions or understanding how we should act. So I wanted to just throw light on this particular aspect of instant karma, because we uh, and I, I I'm and not saying we in terms of India, we out here a lot of people uh, hear the word karma, but we don't believe in instant karma. We believe it's coming from the previous birth, it's going to go into the next birth, and we are stuck in in this life in the karma that we believe is born for us. So I want you to throw light on that one. So what Jasmine does in this book is talk about having been many different selves in her her fairly short life. She's only in her early 20s. Right. But she, she has been a different person so much that she claims she's not the same self that she was at earlier times in her life. Right. Because of the context she's lived in, her experiences that she's had, uh, etc. So she really... She doesn't use the word instant karma, but she sometimes talks about feeling like if you think of a CD or a record, uh, an old record with a a needle jumping grooves. Uh, So within your own life, you can jump a groove um, without having to die and and, and have your next life. So that's really her way of looking at it. Now, as you say, whether that has any real justification in classic Hindu philosophy, uh, I'm I'm not sure, but the way it does get played out, I think, uh, if you look at the the development of Buddhism, this idea that the self can be a misleading concept, and that in fact, it's probably better to not be attached to ego or self if you want to truly um, live a life without suffering. So. This whole notion in, in uh, Indian philosophy of self and then going deep into yourself and finding Atman, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the infinite, and then seeing that that Atman is in fact right. connected to Brahman, the, the transcendent uh, right. ultimate, that in a lot of schools of Buddhism is turned around as to Anatman. There is no Atman. There is no self. Right. Um, and so some of that's played out a little bit in, in Jasmine. Right, right. I, I I read about that story, and I think uh, the whole idea, like you said, there there is, um, there it, it plays out differently in Buddhism and Hinduism in terms of uh, who the self is and why the self does what it does. And we have we have defined it in so many different ways, like it's Atma, the Brahman, the Dharma, uh, the Sansara, the Maya, and all those things. And Buddhism is totally about a presence, which says that all of this does not exist. Um, but I think, like you said earlier, because these are the paths, 
to the same point if we have to understand it that way. Uh, in, in Jasmine's story, Scotty, there is um, there is also a mention in one of the points where I say there's a distinction between the American way of life, this linear way of thinking, uh, the uh, as against the Eastern version, which is like an you expand expand yourself into everything you know so it's like uh, as a as a as a business concept if we were to look at it from the business perspective how effective is this kind of uh, version of self uh, when we look at in uh, look at it in terms of what how to approach business morally spiritually or in a good way we are supposed to be doing good to everybody else as well so how does that, that, that play out? The American way of linear, unemotional kind of thing or do it now kind of thing as compared to the Eastern way, which is community, uh, which is, uh, you know, give your cheek for a slap uh, if one of the other one gets slapped kind of thing. Uh, and and being a, knowing that we can cope with this. I'm going to come to that copability part as well after this. So uh, please tell us, what do you think? Well, I think what's most important for us to understand in business schools in the United States, which are increasingly becoming quite international, both in terms of the student body, but also in terms of the cases that we study, right. in, in a world that's now globalized, when right. we're doing global business, we need to teach our students that as they move around the world, they're going to experience very different forms of capitalism or socialism or ways of, of uh, conducting economic um, enterprise right. that at their deepest level, I think, are based on the religion of that, of that area. So right. the religion that generates uh, values and beliefs and attitudes, which then get generated up into business etiquette, Right. Uh, and how you act and, you know, how you hand your, your greeting card to somebody else and you don't use your left hand in a lot of cultures, you know, when you're handing that business card to somebody, etc. So right. all of those things uh, go up and down back to religion. And right. so if you're going to be doing religion, uh, sorry, if you're going to be doing business around the world, you have to understand those religious differences and try to work your way into the, as you were saying, Americans tend to have a very individualistic approach mm -hmm. and think that the individual can rationally uh, maximize their self-interest and that that's the way the free market works best, etc. You go to a number of other cultures, actually most cultures in the world, it's a much more of a sense of your embeddedness in your group, in your tribe, in your um, family, etc. And that you need to really understand, as an American, the very different, more communitarian context in which right. you're operating. And as you say, different notions, say, of time. Right. You know, the time is, Americans tend to think of time in a very linear way, not in a cyclical way that a lot of other cultures do. Right. Uh, we seem to think time is money and therefore, you know, make a, a lot on being punctual for, for a meeting or, or not talking about personal matters because that don't seem to relate to the business at hand. Right. Uh, well, you're not going to get very far doing business in, in a lot of the world with right. that orientation. So, right, right. as you say, it's really important in doing global business to understand the culture that you're going into to do business right. in. And a lot of that ultimately well, works back to religion. Um, and I, I'm going to take you to the other story that's there in the course, uh, no longer at ease, um, and come back to Jasmine one more time and come back to the American dream one more time. Because in no longer at ease, uh, you, you're talking about mindsets through the colonial rule and how it has impacted people to be the way they are. So we have over here in this side of the world, uh, because of the history of whatever way it has happened, an element of uh, this story and also Jasmine's story uh, that we, we, can, we can operate very well on copability, not on capability, which is where, where the individualistic way of the American way of being is more focused on capability and doing something with that. So we spend a lot of our capability coping with stuff and feeling good about it. How good or bad is that? I mean, does, does it also come into play when people do business with India or India does business with America? Yes, absolutely. To, to understand those very different ways of approaching life and right. doing business and what it's all about. Right. Uh, and as you say, the, the book, uh, No Longer at Ease, by Chinua Achebe is set in Nigeria in the 1950s. Right. It's a 
uh, somebody who's been educated in England. So again, we have this cross-cultural dynamic. Right. But has come back to Nigeria with an anti-corruption um, crusade, really. I mean, he wants to end corruption in Nigeria, and he runs up against bribery uh, pretty quickly when he gets back. Right. And ultimately succumbs uh, to bribery in the book. But you're watching somebody who wants to bring what at one level he thinks are Western values, but actually Nigerians don't want to, to further bribery either. I mean, no country does, right. but get caught in these cycles of corruption. Um, and that's the reality. So how do you, how do you deal with it? Well, uh-huh. So in, in Jasmine's story, Scotty, because uh, there's, there's a, a question that says, I mean, uh, the, an observation with a question which says, uh, the Western character is linear. It has a good storyline. Eastern character has many faces and simultaneously they are the creators and destroyers. So that brings me back to the karma part. And I want to take you to the Bible as I a little bit of what I understand of it, that God forgives you if you go and ask for forgiveness. In our side, when we are the creator and destroyer ourselves, there is this, this oscillation that goes on uh, in the human mind about what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. Uh, but if you look at the Western religion, the way we, we have learned a little bit about Bible, you go ask for forgiveness, you get forgiveness, you move on. So somewhere we don't move on. Uh, you know, so um, uh, how, uh, uh, what would you say? Like if we were not going through the course, and just I, I'm asking you for your personal opinion on this. Why can't why can't we now? We, why can't we figure as as a universal principle, as a universal? I do not know if I can call it a spiritual principle, but that we need to move on, and whatever helps us to move on should be picked as the right thing to do. Uh, why is that? Why is it so difficult still? Well, I think if you look at the the traditional notion of karma as a rigid moral rule, as you say, and there is no forgiveness. You just keep adding up the debits and, and you know, on the plus and minus side. Yeah. And, and keep beating yourself up. Yeah. If, and, and, if you make a mistake, right. Yeah. But what I liked about Jasmine, this book that we've been discussing, wow. is that she isn't stopped by that. She says from page one when she's a seven-year-old and an astrologer is telling her that she's going to be widowed and exiled, she's telling him right from the start, no, I'm not. You know, I can I can reposition the stars just as well as you can, old man. Uh, in fact, she is widowed and she is exiled, so he's actually right. But the um, notion of being kind of dealt a hand of cards, um, which is the, sorry, those are your cards that come from your previous life, and there's that's a rigid law. But then, how do you play the cards? And there is a lot of potential for freedom in how you play the hand that you've been dealt. Absolutely. And that you can, in a sense, reposition the stars based on how you're playing those cards. Right. So, so I think there's some um, flexibility in that notion, just as in many cases, uh, Christian theology can be seen as stuck in a kind of predestination mode. Right. I was brought up as a Presbyterian, as a Calvinist, right. and we were told that we were predestined to heaven or hell before we were born. And right. there wasn't a thing we could do about it. Right. So much for forgiveness. Um, the best you could do was to try to look like you weren't going to hell by trying to act properly and be diligent and be hardworking and so on. But it's it's a, a pernicious uh, way of looking at the world from my perspective and obviously from yours. Right. And I don't think that, I mean, there's ways within Hinduism to see that in a more uh, generous way, Absolutely. and there's ways in in Christianity to see it in a much less generous way. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. I think there's always within that framework, within the framework of wherever you are, and even if we do not touch upon the idea of karma, you still have options. You always will have options on how to play that hand that has been handed out to you because eventually the choices lie with you. Uh, but yes, we have this huge thing in India about astrology, about being told that this is how life is going to be. So if somebody, some astrologer comes and says, oh, this is going to be bad, you know, it does play on people's minds, um, which I, I I don't know. Uh, I've been, because I was, as a kid, I was told something absolutely nasty. And I have fought that all my life. 
uh, and I, I turned it around completely. Uh, my parents were shocked by the fact that I, I was fighting. So I said, I want to thank that astrologer uh, because he told me something that I did not want to accept in my heart and mind and say, no, this is not me. So it, it really does work your mind. Um, uh, Scotty, I want to take you to Siddharth, uh, Herman Hesse's book, and, um, and uh, understand a bit of Buddhism there, understand his, his story. And how does, because Buddhism is uh, a centered space, a totally centered space as it is understood as a religion. How does it work in business uh, in the American perspective? Is, is it accepted there? Is it something that people um, practice in any form or can is it used in the way it is, is it, it's spoken about in Buddhism? Yeah. Well, again, if you're going to be doing business in Japan, you better know something about Buddhism and, and a tradition that goes back to the samurai and a tradition um, that talks about the importance of simplicity, of trying to be a Buddha in your own life right. and following the noble uh, eightfold path and what kinds of ethics that requires. And if you're going to do business in other countries that are primarily Buddhist, uh, Thailand, you know, we could go on and on. Yeah, yeah. You better know something about that orientation. Uh, Buddhism is becoming more and more popular in the United States, and people find that they can co-mingle Buddhist notions with Christianity, with Judaism, with other traditions, right. uh, philosophically and otherwise. So, for example, there is a uh, the the CEO of LinkedIn, Jeff Weiner, right. uh, LinkedIn now has 350 million uh, uh, members. Right. He runs what he calls a, um, a, a business of compassionate management and mindfulness. Right. And he tries to bring Buddhist principles to bear in his workplace in relationship with employees, right. uh, but also externally with uh, business partners and so on. And ultimately, he would like to see his platform at LinkedIn be a place from which wisdom uh, and compassion could be uh, spread worldwide. Right. So you can see a, a place in the United States where somebody who isn't, you know, he say, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm, um, I'm a secular person, but I really respect the Dalai Lama and a lot of Buddhist concepts, and I bring them to bear in my, my business. Yeah, I, I think that's the whole idea of uh, religion or spirituality, if I can, if I can just say it that way, to what, what works for you and how, how much can you expand yourself as a person or what you're doing in, in getting it out to other people in, the, in, a, in a good way. So uh, that brings me to one of the last stories that I want to touch upon, Nice Work um, by David Lodge. Um, I, I think this this part this is um, uh, this is a very interesting. I, when I read this, I was kind of uh, asking this question to myself. Um, this book is. Um, would you like to give us a little bit of an overview or a peep into the, the message of life, the the people in it, uh, how the, that interplay of racism. Uh, and different nations, power, money. How does that play out? Uh, so, not necessarily so, in business, but otherwise as well. Yeah. So nice work really is a uh, an academic who is doing research in the business world and has a lot of her own uh, very negative views of business and what it can do and the business person she's shadowing in his workplace has some fairly negative views about academics and what they do and don't know about reality and so on. Um, but there are issues that arise around uh, layoffs and uh, layoffs relating to people uh, of color in, in that uh, English business context. And it's an ongoing dialogue back and forth with each of these characters, I think ultimately coming to a much better understanding of their respective worlds and how academics can actually be of some help to business people and vice versa, how um, as universities are being affected uh, in terms of their funding, and that's coming out in, in the book as well, and in terms of their ability to basically be effective businesses, 
they need to follow business principles and understand business realities. Right, right. Um, uh, so uh, you're of the opinion, Scotty, that people should follow one religion uh, to be able to understand it fully. Uh, so I, I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to crack a joke here because my daughter, because it, we, we talk about all these stuff, you know, she, we talk about Jesus at home, uh, you know, we've got Bibles all over the place, we've got our own scriptures over here. So I, when I teach my kids about karma and, you know, the negative thing, don't do this thing, you know, you've got to do the right thing. So my daughter, who's just 12 years old, she said, mom, let's, okay, let's figure karma. Uh, you know, I've done the wrong thing. Now let's go to Jesus and ask him for forgiveness. So we do a wrong karma here, but go to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. So I keep laughing and I say, okay, this is a great way from a kid's mind to see that, you know, you can you can open your mind up to all kinds of possibilities to live well and to live right, uh, you know, and know for a fact that it's okay uh, to make mistakes and it's okay to get out there and, and move on. Uh, so uh, I want to have your take on this. Can we, can we uh, with, with your opinion that we should follow one, can we have a mix of it? Is it, is it possible to do a good mix of it? Well, Two ways of answering that. First of all, I need to, to in, 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 in full um, disclosure, tell you that I'm a Unitarian Universalist. Yeah. That's my religious tradition. Right. And Unitarian Universalism is just what you say. It's a wide open tradition, no dogma or doctrine, right. respect the religions of the world and the philosophical traditions that we might call atheist or humanist. Right. Uh, we draw from many sources and we try to um, engage in dialogue with each other within our churches and, and fellowships right. and and draw on the resources of all of the religions and philosophies of the world. Right. So that's my starting place. So then when I say to my fellow Unitarian Universalists, you need to dig some deep wells. You can't just su superficially take a little, like in a grocery store, a little from here, this shelf, a little from that shelf. Right. Try to get into one tradition and dig a deep hole. Right. But second point is, as you do that, respect and understand and appreciate and draw from all those things that other religions can teach you. Christians can learn a lot about their own prayer by understanding meditation from a, a um, Buddhist perspective or understanding um, what goes on for, for Muslims um, during their prayer five times a day uh, and on and on. So you can enhance your own path or well digging, if you will, right. by uh, open uh, exposure to an understanding of other religious traditions. Right, right. So you've written this book called Christ for Unitarian Universalists, which I, uh, which I very, very, uh, I was really excited to read that. And I, when I was reading, I, you see, I've made notes here. <laughs> it, 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 this notes is your book. So, so I was, I was reading because it interests me because um, as a, as a born Hindu, but as a person who has who has um, made the choice to, go, like like you say, you, you know one, uh, you understand one, but then you go elsewhere also and respect that, maybe figure, uh, maybe because your understanding is going to get better. Um, tell us a little bit about that book, because I think that book, as, as much as Jesus was a liberal, needs to, uh, needs to be read, uh, because there's some very strong points there that you made, and uh, we live in such such I think stressed out and altered circumstances today that we need new ideas. We need stronger ideas. We need broader ideas uh, to be able to understand uh, universal the, the spiritual existence. We need to understand the work of uh, the spirit or the work of breath or the work of God or the work of religion. So give us uh, tell us about that book. Uh, tell us about um, you just told me about that. That's your religion. That's a starting place for you. Um, you've answered a lot of questions there. So give us a little bit about that book as well. Right. So this book is really an internal book at the first level for my own denomination. Right. And so as I've said, it's a wide open tradition and less than 20% of us claim to be Christian. Right. Although the religion developed out of Christianity historically a couple of hundred years ago. Right. But through the, the uh, 19th century, actually a lot of, of uh, Unitarian Universalists were influenced by Indian thinking. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was a Unitarian minister, was very influenced through, by Hinduism and Buddhism and so on. Right. And then in the 20th century, very influenced by secular thought, philosophy, uh, atheist uh, understanding and right. so on. So they're now, in this time, less than 20% of us are Christian. So I'm really trying to speak, first of all, to the whole denomination about Christianity, right. which many have felt burned by or feel has been a very negative force. So I'm trying to bring to them 
a, as we were talking earlier, a liberal, progressive understanding of Christianity. And on the other hand, I'm trying to speak more broadly to other people about this progressive kind of Christianity so that the subtitle of the book is a new dialogue with traditional Christianity. So what I'm trying to say is Unitarian and Universalist ideas about salvation, about the nature of Jesus and all of that, um, we've had a lot to say on that from the Bible. We read the Bible uh, in a different way than a lot of conservatives do. And we think that we can help people understand Christianity and reach out to both conservative Christians on the one hand and to people of other traditions and of no tradition, you know, who are atheist or agnostic, and help them understand Jesus in the way that we see him biblically represented as this very progressive figure. Right, right. So I I think because my experience with the church or the Bible has been that this is right. Uh, this is what what it says is like and and the whole literal version of it where i think through your book when i when i was reading it i was so elated because uh, such an such a level such levels of intellectual honesty sitting over there to be able to answer or speak about the same thing with with freedom and with a conscience where the basic idea of probably every scripture in the world of love of being able to um do not do unto others what you don't want done unto yourself. So you need to understand yourself first uh, before you go out and help others or not help others. So uh, huge, I, I think a great, uh, uh, there was a, there's a statement, there's a celebration of the life of the spirit, which is very, very, I think very powerful. So I think everybody must go and get that book as well, apart from uh, <laughs> Jesus was a universal and to go through the courses at Stanford. So um, I want to thank you very much, Scotty, for being here. Uh, I am so, so grateful because this is, uh, we all get to learn from people like yourself and the work that you're doing. Um, I'll, 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 um, I'd like to ask you as a closing remark uh, for, for all of us to understand uh, not just Christianity, but spirituality through Christianity. I mean, we, we are living in different parts of the world. None, some of us do not follow or probably understand uh, Christianity or Jesus as much as people in the West do. So what would be your message for all of us? Uh, in terms of understanding the spiritual part of Christianity. Right. I I have to say that the reason I identify with Christianity now and the reason I became a Unitarian Universalist was because of my experience with a Hindu priest in India who said when I wanted to become a Hindu, because there are many roads to the top of the mountain, and I was fascinated by Hinduism, he said, oh, no, you missed the whole point of what I taught you. Go back to America and be the best Christian you could be if you want to be a Hindu. What? How, how does that work? So I do identify, sometimes call myself a Hindu Christian or a Christian Hindu or you know, so on. So I, I think his perspective on Jesus was Jesus is one of the avatars. Jesus right. is one of the incarnations of God. Right. And he followed Krishna and others may follow the Buddha and so on. But Jesus has a special message, he would say and I would say, of love right. and of compassion and of, of an openness to all people. Right. And the fundamental sort of message of Christianity is that if you are truly loving, if you are truly open to other people, if you truly are with them uh, in the fullness of their being and them with you, right. then you, you find salvation not in some afterlife, right. but here and now, in, in the fullness of your being. So wow. that's the basic message to me uh, that, that Christianity brings. But of course, you can find that very much in, in through other avatars and other incarnations uh, as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I think um, uh, all the spirit, these spiritual masters who have descended on earth in some form at some point, they have their own message to um, let all of us understand what, what life really means. So. Uh, I would say for, for, for myself, people like myself who who have picked up one and uh, more, just like yourself, Unitarian Universalist uh, would be my, my way of being as well, uh, because I want to learn from everybody. I would like to bring all the avatars and spiritual masters together and make them sit down and say, talk to me. So, you know, I'm, 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 I'm that kind of a person. So I'm glad that I'm talking to you. I'm glad for your, for your message and for your work. Uh, we all need to learn this way of liberal way of understanding. Um, the same thing in different ways and in ways that enhances our lives and other people's lives around us. 
Uh, one last question, uh, Scotty, because this is we we are not talking about the mystical supernatural version of religion here, but there is there is a crossover between science, logic, and religion. Uh, what what do you have to say about that? For me, it's absolutely critical. You can't understand the world, the modern world, without drawing upon science and what we know about history wow. and using logical, rational uh, methods. So, to talk about a supernatural as something that breaks into the natural order, right. uh, to me is is very destructive and very problematic because right. the order of nature that we can discover scientifically is the great miracle uh, right. of life. Right. And to somehow think that we can step outside of that and right. that God or some other supernatural force right. intervenes to do things that violate the law of nature and violate our scientific understanding is often where I think religion goes wrong and people's understanding of religion goes wrong. Right. I, I think science has made uh, great progress in, in, able, in, in being able to sort of decipher or being able to make it real in terms of what's happening in the unknown. So it is a crucial part of the entire puzzle. Uh, if that is not looked into or not connected with each other, we have to understand both of them in the same space, uh, being able to make sense of it either way. So um, very nice. Thank you so much. Thank you.